You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. On this BMJ podcast, we've got three guests who are all critically involved in behaviour change in medicine. We have Donald McCauley. Hi, I'm Donald McCauley. I'm the primary care editor of the BMJ. And my role is really to take the BMJ view. In the BMJ, our masthead says we're about helping doctors make better decisions. But of course, that's really only a way to help patients make better decisions about their own health. And this is why we're here today, to try and look at the various reasons why and how patients can make better decisions about their own health. We have Dan Heath. Hi, I'm Dan. I'm a senior fellow at uh, Duke University's Case Center and the co-author of a book on behavior change called Switch, How to Change Things When Change is Hard. And Mike Evans. Yeah, so I'm uh, Mike. I'm a family doctor at uh, St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto, associate professor of family medicine and public health at the University of Toronto, and a scientist at the Lee Ka-shing Knowledge Institute. And I started something called the Health Design Lab, where we sort of fuse uh, clinicians and creatives and uh, create uh, engaging uh, patient-facing health messages. So, Dan, behavior change is a lot more complicated than people often think. I think doctors under under underrate it. How have you got into thinking about this issue? What's the solution? Well, I don't, I don't think there's any magic uh, bullet solution, but, uh, but we do know why it's hard. Often, when it's time to change, we don't even agree in our own heads about whether or how we should change. So if you think about probably all of us on, on this podcast have been on a diet at some point in our lives, and part of us really sincerely wants to lose some weight, and part of us really sincerely wants to you know, gorge on an extra cheese pizza. So, so there's this tension that we have in our brains that complicates change. And that tension is really a manifestation of the fact that psychologists tell us we have two independent systems uh, in our heads, one called the rational system. And that's the part of us that plans and analyzes and hatches the idea for the, the budget and the diet. And the other independent system is the emotional system, which is uh, you know much more akin to the dogs or the, the brains that our dogs have. You know, it's uh, the part of us that that crave that that has that kind of moment to moment desire generator. I want this. I don't want that. So, in our book Switch, what we've done is we've borrowed an analogy from a psychologist named John Height, who teaches at the University of Virginia. And Height, uh, I think, captures the dynamic between these two systems so well. He calls the, the emotional system an elephant, an elephant in our brains. And the rational system is like a rider perched on top of that elephant. And what I love about that analogy is two things. Number one, the scale imbalance there. And secondly, that the rider, you know, the small one, really thinks he's the one in charge. But of course, if these two ever disagree, I mean, who's your money on? And if you're talking about organizational change, many doctors um, work in hospitals and in quite big groups now. And you talk about Dan Berwick, where he tried to save lives really by a bunch of principles that you think fit in well with your model. Can you expand on that for us? Yeah, so what what we describe in our book is is basically a three-part framework for thinking about behavior change. And and the first two parts are our motivation which is really intended to move that elephant inside us, and direction, which is for the rider, the rational part of us. Uh, the third piece, by the way, is really about the environment uh, and shaping a, a culture.
culture and a physical environment that are conducive to change. And so Berwick is a guy who kind of put all the pieces together. Um, some of your listeners may know Berwick and some may not. He's uh, an American who uh, briefly ran Medicare for the country, uh, but prior to that was the head of a, a nonprofit called the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, or the IHI. And his lifelong passion has been in reducing medical errors. And so at one point, he, he comes up with what he calls the 100,000 Lives Campaign. He uh, appears at a conference with a bunch of hospital administrators, and he challenges them to save 100,000 lives in a period of 18 months by reducing medical errors. And so the first question is, where does the motivation come from? He has to, to find a way to get them on his side. I mean, saving 100,000 lives is the kind of thing anybody could get motivated about. But he also made it more visceral. He, at this conference, brought in the mother of a, of a young girl who'd been killed by a preventable medical error. And she said, you know, I wish this campaign had been around a few years ago and, and my daughter Josie might still be with us. So the motivation there is clear, but motivation, of course, is not enough. You also have to have direction. And Berwick was brilliant about guiding these, these hospital administrators, things highly specific, you know, specific as if you've got a patient on a ventilator, they need to be elevated between 30 and 45 degrees. And the final piece was to, to make it simply easier for hospitals to embrace this campaign. So he had a, a, a number of training alternatives for hospitals joining the campaign. He matched hospitals together so they could learn from each other and share experiences. And so you can see the three dimensions of change here. You've got direction, you've got motivation, and you've got a clear path to get there. And in fact, uh, against all odds, Berwick succeeded in this. Uh, and it, the, uh, the group he assembled of hospitals across the country saved an estimated 122,000 lives as a result of this campaign. So it, just, it just boggles the mind. Don, I really love your um, tension between the rational and the emotional. This is a real challenge for us in communication, the medical message. When you talked about Don Berwick, we work very closely with Don. In fact, this very week we're running the International Quality Forum that Don has had a major involvement in. And what Don has, he has this combination of the passion and the evidence. The big thing with Don is getting buy-in from the clinicians. How do you reckon we can really get buy-in from clinicians for behavior change? Well, I, I would defer to the people on this call who are who are more domain experts than I am. Uh, you know, I think all that I can add to the picture is I think that that the motivation is always going to come from from some kind of emotion um, rather than from information. I think that that's the, the the lesson from from multiple domains, not just healthcare, but also business and personal change and so forth. I know Michael will be dying to jump in on this, and uh, because he's done a lot on getting buy-in from clinicians. So, Mike Evans, how do how do you think about getting buy-in from clinicians? Yeah, I mean, I I totally agree with Dan, and I spent a lot of time doing a lot of work in evidence-based medicine and guidelines and so on and so forth. And um, now I would say, uh, Kareem, my work is more about stories trumping data, and probably relationships trumping stories. I think, um, you know, clinicians are no different than other people, and I, I think uh, all of us focus, whether it's on the patient or on the clinician, on, on knowledge. I, I think um, you're kind of telling them what they already know. Uh, my wife's the head of resident wellness here at the University of Toronto, and she would say that uh, clinicians 
don't make errors based on knowledge so much as uh, their work-life balance is poor. They can't retire. They've got too many patients booked. It's it's these exterior issues that are as big a part of the uh, quality improvement game. You know, when I'm trying to change clinician behavior, I don't actually focus on knowledge. Uh, my first question is, how can I make it easier to do the right thing? Um, and uh, in the busy primary care world, that seems to win out. One of the big issues that concerns us in the BMJ is to try and reduce medical medication errors. Now, you, you've quite a bit of experience with this, Dan, and I really enjoyed the example in, in, in your book of, of these nurses in, in station. Perhaps you'd like to elaborate a little bit on that. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, at uh, the Kaiser Hospital in, in San Francisco, uh, they were trying to figure out a way to reduce uh, errors in medication administration. And so uh, a woman named Becky Richards was kind of the director of this initiative. And, and by the way, they already had a very good uh, error rate, uh, probably one in a thousand. Uh, and so this is one that, that I think is really an environmental problem uh, that needed an environmental solution. So what they had figured out was that the errors were usually caused by nurses getting distracted when they were doing their, their medication administration. So, you know, maybe they were counting out pills and then all of a sudden a doctor called from down the hall, hey, can you help? And so they started asking themselves, you know, what can we do to the physical environment to combat these distractions? And what they came up with was uh, what they called medication vests. So picture a, a cheap, bright orange plastic vest, you know, the kind of thing you see construction workers wear. And the idea was when nurses were doing their medication administration, they would put on one of these vests, and that was a signal to everybody else to, to leave them alone, you know, to give them some peace and quiet and let them do their work. So a couple of things that are interesting about this. One is the nurses absolutely despised this idea. They thought it was preposterous. They thought the vest made them look cheesy and ridiculous. You know, one of them said, you know, why not just give me a hard hat and I'll go, you know, work the highway construction down the street. Uh, and so they were scathing. But, uh, you know, with some pressure from Becky Richards and her colleagues, they agreed to give it a shot. And in the six-month pilot, they found that medication errors dropped in half. And all of a sudden, all of those skeptics became believers. And they started to think, well, you know, sure, these vests are dorky, but my goodness, if it cuts our error rate in half, it's probably worth it. So they rolled it out hospital-wide uh, and, and found the same effect. Errors decreased across the hospital, except for one unit. The only unit where errors did not decrease was, of course, the unit where the nurses thought the vests were too ridiculous to wear and they hadn't participated in it. So what I love about that story is, number one, it shows the power of the environment. You know, just the fact that they were wearing something different actually created a better outcome for patients. And number two, the, the fact that, um, that there was skepticism out for, up front, but that the skeptics were ultimately won over because they were smart enough to carefully track the results and be in a position where they could come back and say, hey, I know you were skeptical, but will you reconsider based on this? And to their credit, they did. Yeah, it, they, they tried to introduce this in the UK, and it created a major storm in the autumn of, of last year. Uh, when they looked at bringing in these um, tabards, as they called them, that said, do not disturb drug round in progress, and patients and nurses in the UK were really quite upset about this, and it, it made a lot of the national press. 
And for example, um, a spokesperson for the patient association said that the program was grotesque and ridiculous. And that if nurses can't do more than one thing at a time, they're a pretty hopeless nurse. So I guess they had the same type of resistance there. If you were to introduce that, how, how would you reckon that should be introduced to, to, to reduce this resistance? It's a great question because they, they faced exactly the same kinds of responses at Kaiser. You know, it was um, it, the nurses themselves said, you know, do we really want to advertise to people that we, do we don't think we can do two things at once? You know, do we want people to think we're idiots? And I think at that point, the experiment is the thing. It's like stop having philosophical debates about whether nurses can multitask or not. It's completely irrelevant. What is relevant is what happens when they do it and does it reduce the error rates, does it help patients? And I think at the point when you've got the proof, as Kaiser did, that it really does reduce the error rate, then you'd have to be a callous person indeed to stick to your line about uh, you know, nurses not being able to do two things at once when the data is staring you right in the face that it does make a difference. Uh, so, so I think that would be my approach, is, is orient people on shared values and then agree to trust the experiment. Sounds good, eh? Mike, you're you're very interested in this, the, the getting the message across, and your your big message has been physical activity. Really interested in how you get this buy-in from our our patients in physical activity. Most of what we've done in health promotion, and health promotion was the big vogue in in primary care. Most of it has been a dismal failure. Can you see how we can really make things happen? I think the point there is that, again, we're focusing so much on the knowledge. I mean, the classic example, uh, we're just doing a, a health messaging uh, campaign on smoking cessation. It's targeted at teenagers, and all the, the previous attempts had been uh, done on, uh, you know, you shouldn't smoke, it's bad for you, it's going to kill you, it's going to make you look uglier. And, of course, the audience, uh, teenagers, don't really care about that. They just care about sort of joining a group or, or not joining a group, you know, being um, an individual. And uh, so we created a new site called stupid.ca. So it wasn't that smoking was bad for you. It was stupid. So there's these small changes, I think, Domino, when you're looking at uh, uh, changing a behavior. And you really have to sort of understand the anthropology of what you're getting into, uh, what your target market is. And, and that's why it's so important that um, um, people like Dan are on the phone with people like us, is that uh, I actually don't think the solutions are going to come from doctors and nurses and uh, people like us. I think it's going to be more the collaboratory that uh, we have to get people that are, are interested in the stories of uh, marketing and business and behavior change like Dan, uh, but also people like us that... Uh, um, are trying to create uh, innovation and, and, and new ways for people to do the right thing. Mrs. Dan, uh, I just want to say what, what I admire so much about Mike's work is that he never loses sight of the, the emotion as the, the fuel for change. And I'm excited to check out uh, your new work on Smoking is Stupid. It reminds me of um, a campaign that was done here in the U.S. Uh, that, as far as I know, was the only uh, campaign that, that showed statistical results in terms of curbing teen smoking. And the departure point for this campaign was exactly as you said. It was, it was abandoning all the past attempts to say, oh, smoking's so bad for you, because you know, if there's one thing that teenagers really care about, it's their long-term health. Um, and the, this campaign was called The Truth. And it, it showed, in a typical TV spot, it would show teenagers kind of uh, up to mischief against 
the big tobacco companies who were sort of painted as the villains. And so in one spot, for instance, they, they piled uh, a, a huge stack of what appeared to be body bags on the front lawn of one of the, the major uh, tobacco companies in the middle of the night. Uh, and then they started shouting at the headquarters uh, through a megaphone that, uh, you know, why do you produce products that kill your customers? And, and so what I love about that is here's a campaign that was smart enough to go find the emotion. And for teenagers, that emotion is, is probably more likely to be rebellion uh, than it is to be, you know, uh, safety and security of health. And, and so I think none of this is to say that, that any of these efforts are going to be easier, that we figured it out or anything else. This is always going to be a difficult effort. But, but, I, but I think it's important that we're all aiming at the right target, and that target is emotion. Mike, I really enjoyed that, that, that discussion. One of the issues, that, the big issues that you and I face in primary care is uh, that we're pressurized a little bit to encourage people to be active and uh, to lose weight. Obesity is a big issue. But it seems to me that really doctors are the last people to be involved in this. We really need people like Dan to help us here. Dan, have you any thoughts on how we get government buy-in or moving to demedicalize physical activity and demedicalize the obesity problem? Well, I don't want to give up on the doctor's role, actually. <laughs> I agree with you that, uh, that it's absurd to think that the doctor would be the only force in the patient's life you know, advocating for these kinds of changes, and it would be so much more powerful coming from a friend or a family member or a community. Uh, but I do think that, uh, that doctors can do a better job of, um, of shrinking the change. Um, and I, think, I hope we're going to have a chance to talk about Mike's 23 and a half hours video because I think it fits perfectly here. Uh, but the notion, in short, is just I think what people want from their doctors is they want a way to take a step forward, not 10 steps. They don't want to be you know, triathletes who eat nothing but whole grains. They just want to know what's one thing I can do to make my health better. And I think doctors are, are reluctant to, to kind of prioritize. You know, it, It's like when we stereotype doctors, we think of, the litany of things they're going to tell us to do with our nutrition and our health. And, and often it can feel a bit overwhelming, like, well, there's no way I can ever be that good, and so why even try? But, but I think that if doctors can learn to simply get the wheels in motion, to get people doing something rather than nothing. If, if Dan's going to take the pro-doctor approach, I'll take the slightly anti-doctor approach. <laughs> good man, Mike. Go I, for it. I, I actually agree with him, but I... I also am struck by, you know, how often I'm in the community, uh, whether it's a YMCA or a coffee shop or some other kind of community center, and the person there says, well, why are you the one leading the charge against diabetes? You see Frank or Sylvia, you know, three times a year. I see Frank or Sylvia three times a week, and... I think maybe I should be the one leading the charge against diabetes. Um, so obviously the answer is, is all of the above, uh, but I do think uh, there needs to be, um, to, to, to think that health care is going to lead uh, the health changes, uh, I think that's, that's not the case. I think we need to kind of partner more with where people are at and uh, at the point of curiosity, at the point of change. Mike, you're the man who should be known as the two to three million man because that's how many people so far have watched your video, 23.5 hours, and the link is here with the podcast. Tell us briefly about how that got going and 
how you're hoping that will change behaviour? And then we'll ask Dan to comment on his thoughts on it. Thanks, Reem. So I love the illustrated lecture format. Um, and uh, so I did two things, I guess. I, I sat in my living room for two weeks and surveyed all the literature about what was the most, uh, what was the most impactful thing on health. And I drew some conclusions, and I, I think other people would draw other conclusions, and we all have our, our biases. And then I distilled it down. As, as Mark Twain said, I didn't have enough time to write you a short letter. So it, it takes a lot uh, to, to, to distill things. I think the second thing I did was I, I collaborated. So the I became a we, and, and the we being an old friend and award-winning documentary filmmaker named Nick DePontier, a superb illustrator named Lisa Sorza, and a very talented uh, editor named Dave Schmidt. And over the next uh, two days after we rented the film studios, we, we produced 23 and a half hours, what is the single most important thing you can do for your health. Uh, we had no dissemination uh, plan, and, and so in December, I, in December I, I was sitting at an ice hockey rink, and I thought, well, I'll post it on YouTube and see if, if people uh, like it. And uh, I think I posted on the Monday, and then on the Wednesday we had 340 views, and on the Friday, we had 13,000 views, and my eyebrows uh, went up. And long story short, here we are in April. We have uh, about 2.5 million people who have viewed it. Uh, about 25,000 people watch it a day. 20,000 people have liked it. Uh, 250 have disliked it. Uh, about 18,000 have posted on their Facebook, probably more, and there are thousands more that have uh, have emailed it to their loved ones. And uh, I think maybe that's been the eureka of the whole experience is, is creating something um, that people actually send to one another. So it's, it's to Domino's point earlier, it's, it's not necessarily coming from the doctor, it's coming from a best friend. And as I said earlier, I, I do think stories trump data, and I think we tried to tell stories from the literature, as, as Dan does in his book. But I think also relationships trump stories. And I think when a, a person that loves you or, or, or vice versa sends you this and says, hey, check this out, uh, that there's an incredible power to that. So it's uh, gone from a, a nine-minute video to uh, a bit of a movement. And uh, I think in the YouTube world, to have something that's viral that's over two minutes, um, not uh, pole dancing or cats falling or kids uh, on uh, dental anesthetics is a pretty big deal so we're we're just thrilled and I I think um, uh, you know I've done a lot of things in health but this uh, is just an amazing feeling to have all these people um, stop and take a, a few minutes to look at it. Dan what did you think when you saw the video how did it work for you? Well for, first of all let me just say imagine if someone came to you with uh with a bet that a nine-minute video about the importance of exercise was going to generate 2.5 million views on YouTube, I assure you, I would have uh, I would have put down a few dollars against that, uh, which is which is testimony to what what Mike has done. And I would I guess I would highlight two things about it because I, I I've been a a longtime fan of uh, of sticky ideas, and this is certainly one. Uh, what many sticky messages have in common is that they have a kind of surprising aspect to them so you know when Susan Boyle walks out on stage we all think she's going to be terrible and we're kind of wincing as she opens her mouth and then she blows us all away that that, that surprise has has power and the same is true in Mike's video I you know we expect doctors to be telling us all the things we're doing wrong and and instead there's this just hilarious fantastic question in the video which is do you think you can limit your sitting and sleeping to just 23 and a half hours per day. 
<laughs> which is which is such a great twist. You know, it's not that we need 30 minutes of exercise. It's that we have the freedom to be lazy for 23 and a half hours a day, which really makes you think. Uh, and beyond that, to get to back to a point uh, we were talking about earlier, Mike has the willingness to tell us the most important thing. Right? And in fact, at the beginning of the video, he, he lays it out explicitly. He says, you know, what's the, what's the biggest bang for your buck? What's the single thing you can do with the greatest ROI? And I think as soon as he says that, you know, those viewers all scattered across the world, their ears perk up because they're interested in one thing that they can do differently. And, uh, and he says, start here, 30 minutes of exercise, and that step by itself has these astonishing positive effects. So, so I think it's great, and I think if anybody listening to this hasn't seen it yet, boy, it's, it's definitely worth nine minutes of your time. Yeah, and we'll put that link there. Donald, were you going to say something? Yeah, yeah, I was going to be my usual mischievous self and uh, tease Mike that he's been a, he's had a remarkable achievement. He's had he's managed to get two and a half million people to spend an extra nine minutes sitting in front of their keyboard. <laughs> exactly, which has but, been a lot of the commentary. <laughs> but what I what I really liked was that the message. It's how do we make this behavior change? How do we translate the two and a half million views into two and a half million people doing something? I also think we need to think about people's style. Uh, when I was in clinic uh, at the start of my career, I'd say, you should you should exercise 30 minutes, you should stop smoking, you should do whatever. And uh, I think Dan's right. Uh, we have to think a, a little bit more about uh, the little things. And so I focus um, on people's style. So when I talk to people about their activity, uh, my sister is a creature of habit. She runs three times a week, no matter what. Uh, other people I see are very goal-oriented. They want to run a 5K or walk a 5K or run a marathon in, in the spring. And uh, so they need that kind of goal. Uh, another, I'm a social sport, so I don't get up and run, but I rarely miss my ice hockey games or my tennis games or, or, or whatever. If there's a group uh, doing it, I'm, I'm signed in, and it's signed in every week, so I do it. Other people need a coach, uh, a mentor, a um, um, other people to push them. They need their feedback. And so I get people to kind of think about what's what's your style? What's going to work for you? Um, and I, I think that seems to be incredibly helpful, uh, at least at, 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 at the individual level. I'm really interested in engagement. And of course, engagement on, as primary care docs as we are is on a one-to-one -one basis. But there's quite a lot of rhetoric about the possibility that a population could be engaged. A banker involved in giving some advice to the National Health Service, Derek Wanless, talked about a situation where the public was fully engaged and that would reduce the healthcare costs and the impact of the aging population on, on our health service. To Dan and, and Mike, do you think it's really possible that a whole population could be engaged, fully engaged in looking after their own health? I think what I used to do was patient education, and I don't call it that anymore. I call it patient engagement. It comes back to what I was saying earlier. I think we focus on the what a bit too much and not the why and the how and the how do I. And uh, um, I think uh, you're absolutely right. I think when we were talking about how to uh, change the workforce issues in healthcare, I actually think we need to change the goalposts. And I think it's it's true with, um, with, uh, with patients as well. I think... 
our goalpost now is how can we get them to know the most about their uh, about their health decision, which is great and something we should continue to do. But I actually don't think it's the first goalpost, and uh, it's what Dan was talking about earlier around emotional. I, th- I think it's more about getting them engaged. Um, and engagement has such a more profound effect because it's, it's a concept that goes over time and, uh, um, and takes into account that people are going to get derailed. It takes into account that the big game in town is, is behavior change. Um, it takes into account that uh, it's going to be much more than us that's going to get people engaged, that there has to be feedback, that there has to be uh, a kind of community, that there has to be support, um, that we have to take into account culture and mental health and stress and uh, the realities of uh, life. And uh, so I think we... Um, uh, uh, we need to move. We need to stop saying sort of patient education, and uh, think much more about patient engagement. Yeah, and I think um, you know often we take a take a bleak view of of the public and their their willingness and their capacity for change, but we shouldn't forget that that we're winning on a lot of fronts. Uh, if you think about smoking, for instance, I mean that there's a case where. Uh, the public has managed to get engaged uh, against smoking for a period of decades. And, you know, look, it's not going to 0% smoking overnight, but, but it, there is a long and steady decline, and I think that, that smells like success. Uh, or if you think about, you know, in many countries, uh, there has been, you know, a major effort against drunk driving. And, and as far as I know, all of those efforts are succeeding using many of the same tools, you know, uh, campaigns that get people uh, aware of, of the harm of drunk driving and the unnecessary deaths and uh, campaigns to encourage community support so that, you know, if I'm out with my buddies, one of us decides not to drink so we can drive the others around. Um, and so there are examples of, of a kind of society-wide engagement I don't think it works every time, and, and I don't think it's, it's easy or quick. Uh, but there's no question that this is a winnable victory. And it may take some, some stumbles and some, some improvisations to get there, but uh, it is possible. And, Dan, you've got an event coming up in London? I do, yeah. I'll be at the Royal Garden Hotel in London on May the 30th. Uh, there'll be lots of hooks to behavior change, the kind of things we've been talking about today. If anybody's interested, you can get the details at benchmarkforbusiness.com. Kareem, can I add one more thing? Yep, absolutely. Uh, just to say that um, uh, all the resources that we'll be developing and piloting will all be on myfavoritemedicine.com. So if people want to see it there, that'd be great. So we've really covered lots of territory today. I won't try and summarise it, but behaviour change is a massive issue in medicine and we really see that various approaches can be used to try to create success stories. I'd like to thank Dan Heath for giving up his time to be on this BMJ podcast, Mike Evans for creating 23.5 hours and sharing his thoughts, and Donald McCauley as the BMJ primary care editor for guiding us through the issues. For more information about this program and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.